Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne will be speaking with Sean Smith and Melissa Hoffman. They are the co-directors of the Living Future Foundation, which is a 1,300-acre home to veganic, wildlife-integrated agriculture, a duck sanctuary, and so much more, located in Huntington, Vermont. This interview is mind-blowing with its possibilities of what agriculture and eating could look like if we just do it right. Yeah, do it right. That's a that's a good idea. Why don't we do a few more things right? Why don't we do anything right? It's crazy. We live in a crazy world. Are you all aware of that anyway? I digress. So this week on the bonus segment, we'll be hearing more of my conversation with Sean and Melissa. As always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate or $100 a year. And it's a good time to do that $100 a year donation if you can manage it. Why is that, Jasmine? Because we're in our end of year fundraising campaign right now, which means that thanks to our Barnyard benefactors and an anonymous donor who matched the Barnyard benefactors, every dollar that you donate becomes tripled. So up to $20,000, your donations will be matched by our Barnyard benefactors who will throw in $20,000 as well and an anonymous donor who will throw in another $20,000. We do the vast majority of our fundraising for the year at our end of year. So if you believe in pro-animal, responsible, vegan media, then support Our Hen House by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and your dollars will be tripled. It is a great time to donate. And there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, not that, not that you should donate to others instead of us. We're always number one, but yeah, lots of not-for-profits need money this year. So, so if you're in a position to do so, because a lot of people are not, because as we know, things are, things are still bad. And during the pandemic, which is, uh, sadly heading in the wrong direction at the moment, because things are getting worse instead of better. We want everyone to be more careful than ever. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are a couple of uh, uh, vaccines on the market that really look promising. So it's not like this is going to go on forever, but right now things are bad. So we our effort to support uh, everybody being more careful for our flock is to keep you busy for at least one hour on Fridays with our Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are at 4 p.m. New York time. Sometimes we have guests, and sometimes we just have a chat amongst ourselves. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates. You can always write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And we look forward to seeing you there. So before we get to the interview, uh, Thanksgiving is coming up. And I know it's a loaded holiday for a lot of people, especially this year. And it has an added layer of loadedness uh, for a lot of vegans, not only is it very depressing that this is a an appropriated day that is celebrated around a carcass and the horror that happens to turkeys is astounding around this time of year but it is also a a day that is rooted in a lot of other bad shit <laughs> to put it mildly however i know that a lot of vegans use this holiday as a way to be great advocates when it comes to creating delicious plant-based meals and 
when it comes to forging ahead with new rituals and new traditions. That I am a big fan of, but it's difficult this year due to COVID-19. And Yeah, no, everything's so complicated this year because, yeah, Thanksgiving is such a fraught holiday, especially for vegans, uh, but for a lot of people. And yet it's really a very beloved holiday to a lot of people because, you know, we didn't know any of that when we were kids and we have happy memories, or some of us do. And, you know, it's it's less difficult than the gift-giving holidays. It's So there's a lot of lovely things about it. There's a lot of horrible things about it. And then this year, it's just kind of missing in action. Uh, and we have to come up with new ways. So it's complicated, guys, but we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> Yeah, and last week we talked about holiday roasts, which we don't have to we don't have to pick up that conversation again. But, you know, we were only talking about like just a few. And since then, so many articles have been coming out just pointing out all of the many holiday roasts that that you can get. Uh, And it's it's cool. Like you can get you can certainly make your own. You could get the field roast, which is what I got. You could get the Gardein holiday roast. You could get um the tofurkey, which is so iconic, you could get like there's so many other things. The veggie Duncan by the Sporkful. Uh, there's the Maywa, which we talked about, or Lily's vegetarian, which we talked about last week on the podcast, has one that they offer. Uh, and of course, Yeah Dog, which we love, love, love Yeah Dog. And you're lucky That's for you. Y e a h d a w g. By the way, right. They started with great hot dogs, but yeah, I just found out that they have a holiday roast as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's funny how I know that things can be made into your centerpiece, like vegetables can, you know, like beautiful cauliflower loaves or or lentil loaves or mushrooms. But yet I prefer that that like meaty sort of experience. And I know everyone says it's all about the sides. It's not all about the sides. It's just not. It's a lot about the sides. But yeah, I like that roast roasted something in the middle of the table. Hopefully something that didn't used to like have a heart and a, and a soul. You know, I was thinking we attended virtually this this event that our friend Marisa Miller-Wolfson put together, who is the filmmaker behind the movie Vegucated and now is the author of The Vegucated Family Table. And it was called Three Sticks Holiday Plant-Based Cook-Along Class, and it featured Miyoko from Miyoko's Creamery, as well as Ayana and Kaylee from Renegade Food and and others as well. And basically, they provide you with a shopping list, and you buy the ingredients ahead of time, and you hop onto this Zoom call, and you're walked through how to make it. And a lot of people make it. I sat there and drank wine, whatever, no shame. It's kind of the same mentality as I have when I look through cookbooks. I prefer them to be coffee table books. I don't want to actually make the thing. But but exactly. that I like to sit as as our friend friend Amy used to say, it's just it's nice to just sit around eating cereal with soy milk and reading cookbooks. <laughs> That's kind of my Well, speed. exactly. However, which is ridiculous cuz she's a fabulous cook and I'm not. But if we are looking for new ways to connect this year, I, I think taking uh, taking Maurice's lead with this this cook along class, like one thing we could do when we're connecting virtually with our friends and family this year is step up our vegan advocacy by creating some very simple recipe or sharing our favorite, you know, 
pumpkin cupcake recipe or something like that and walking our families through how to make it. It could be a present. You could even have the ingredients shipped to them. You could do it for the holidays. It doesn't just have to be for Thanksgiving. Then you get on a Zoom. That's such a great idea. I love yeah. that idea. Yeah, it's fun. I don't want to do it, but I want somebody to do it for me. <laughs> well, uh, I, I do think it is important. No, it really is a good and idea. It's, it's important this year that we do create new ways of connecting because, you know, it is. I just want to remind people that it is that like very casual, like get together with friends and family that is very much at the at the root of why. COVID-19 is on the uptick right now. So, you know, it's important. I was saying to you earlier, like one of my favorite parts about being an adult, which is funny for someone in her 40s to say, I should have said this 20 years ago, but one of my favorite parts about getting older is that I am given the benefit of understanding perspective and that things shift and they pass. And we are in a very difficult time right now. All of us are, everyone, and some people worse than others, but we are all going through something. And it is it is the darkest time I can remember. However, it will pass. It will pass. And if you need to just opt in for believing that, if you don't feel like it'll pass soon enough and you need to just believe me, then believe me. But things shift all the time. They sh- And, you know, it, nothing ever goes back to what it was. So the normal shifts, you know, the barometer for normal. And there's a lot of grief in that knowledge. But it's also kind of cool because we don't know what the new normal will be, but I promise you it will serve us. And all we have to do is get through the now. And it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable and we might cry when we're doing these virtual connections with our family. But as vegans, we have always made our own ways. We have created new ways forward. And I think we can create new ways of advocating for animals through food and through fun and through joy. So I hope that people join me in that and understand that even though it's okay to lean into the sad and it's okay to acknowledge that this is shitty, we can also come out of that knowing that it will pass. You know, I do think this will pass partially because of the the vaccine. Well, mostly because of the vaccines, one of which was was developed with the help of um, Dolly Parton, I might add, pretty much everybody's favorite human being. She donated a million dollars or invested a million dollars or donated. I don't know what. But anyway, a million of her dollars is in that vaccine. And somebody on Twitter, I won't take credit for it, wrote vaccine, 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 vaccine. (laughs) That was terrible. (laughs) Hopefully someone understands what we were going for there. I I, I can't imagine. Everyone doesn't. Well, if if not, just so you know, we were... We were taking Jolene and we were making it vaccine. And if you don't know the song, like pause this and go Google the song Jolene and then come back and understand what we did there. A joke is always so good when you have to explain it. right? Yeah, that was that was good. That was helpful. Um, I wish I was as positive about as you that. Yeah, I think this will pass. Uh, I'm not sure things are going to get great ever because. <laughs> There's a lot of problems going on and climate is the new one. But, you know, that's just me. And people who know me know to be forewarned that that I'm a dark person. I do. Uh, I totally agree with you that I love the idea of inventing new ways to connect to people. That's crucial. And we've been doing that through this entire pandemic. And some of them are getting a little old. People are getting sick of the Zoom calls and watching the movies together. But still, 
you know, keep going, keep coming up with new things because, you know, going to parties at your family's house isn't all, all wonderful either. Mm -hmm. Like, don't expect everything to be all wonderful. And also there's just something about when people come up with new way to, when I see businesses or individuals or whatever coming up with ways to cope, like everything from, from, I, I saw somebody sent around this thing about this picture taking company that takes school pictures. They're now asking people to do it at home and they're making them look like school. I, whether it works or not, it's like people try. They try to save their own businesses, but they also try just walking around seeing people wearing masks sometimes make me teary because these are people who they're just trying. They're trying to make this okay. You know, uh, re there's a there's a resiliency to the human spirit that as much as I hate humans most of the time does really move me sometimes. And so uh, even if it, something doesn't work perfectly, give it a try. And one of the ways that we always manage to celebrate Thanksgiving, which still can be done, is to listen to our episode featuring the play Sanctuary. I mean, this isn't new every year. We play it every year at, at Thanksgiving, but it's so good that even if you've seen it before, you're going to want to see it again. It's like, uh, what do you call it? Alice's Restaurant. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to just listen it's every quite year. It's popular. So it's gonna, we're going to have an, a, a special episode of, uh, an additional episode of our Hen House this coming week is what we're trying to say. Because we do this every year. We recorded this in 2017. And it is a radio play, if you will. And it was written by John Yunker. Uh, and we we performed it live at New York City's Symphony Space during the 2017 Compassion Arts and Culture and Animals Festival. And Sanctuary is a radio play or podcast play. It's easier to say radio play that is about a couple, one of whom goes vegan around the time of Thanksgiving. And it's about like what happens with that couple. And we all acted in it. And uh, our hen house was able to take part in this really cool festival and it's it, we live recorded it. And so you get to hear it. We're going to be pushing it out. So stay tuned for that. It'll come into your feed. Maybe you've heard it before. We hope you listen again. Because personally, I was really good. Marianne was the only one of us who didn't have acting training and was actually quite excellent. I do. I do well, agree. Thank you. I yeah. was kind of kidding, but, uh, but no, I'll you were great compliments I can get. So, yeah, that's a Thanksgiving tradition that isn't everyone's tradition yet, but but I'm sure soon will be. For people who don't get the Alice's Restaurant reference, that is a song, uh, a long talking blues song by Arlo Guthrie from way back in the day during the Vietnam War, which was always played. It was about a Thanksgiving debacle, and it, many radio stations played it every every Thanksgiving, and I'm sure some still do. So you mentioned the Flock Fridays earlier, and I have almost never missed one, but I had to miss it last week. I, I think it was the... I did explain to the entire Flock why you were missing it, but I don't think we've explained it on the podcast. And it is both a, a, an exciting and a tragic story. Yes. And it is that I was part of the virtual audience for Let's Make a Deal. And it airs in it airs in uh, December. It's the holiday episodes. There, three of them were shot, and I uh, am not really allowed to say that much. But but it was a long day, and it wasn't really uh, it didn't really pay off. It was beyond a long day, wasn't it? Like eleven hours of sitting yeah. there. Yeah, and like 
I put the backdrop up and I like decorated the backdrop like Christmas, like a fake mantle and like the uh, stockings. And I had to, I was dressed in this like, I was as the Christmas queen was my costume. And I was like, it was all this taffeta and like very weird fabric, like in a super cheap costume that was like making my skin break out in a rash. It was like (laughs) awful. It was pretty awful. But I will say this. I I, I did want to mention this on the scope of the call because um, I was in a a, like Zoom room with a lot of other people who were virtual audience members. And we were together for that whole 11 hours. I like could not believe how many references to animal exploitation came up like amongst them during the call one point someone said, too bad this isn't the Thanksgiving call, uh, Thanksgiving show, because I have I have my turkey right outside. And this person meant that they had a turkey, which I'm sure they'll slaughter the turkey. Oh, they meant they, they had a live turkey. Yes, they had a oh turkey. My God. And oh then my God. so so th- so that person says that thing about their live turkey and someone else like totally takes it to another level and says, well, some people have turkey on Christmas. And I said, and some people don't. <laughs> Good. And, you know, at one point I'm holding up my laptop because I was trying to also work in the middle of all this and it has a vegan sticker on it. This is not what we were shooting. And someone was like, oh, are you vegan? And I said, oh, yeah. Like, that's always my answer. Like, oh, yeah, obviously. Um, and they started going on and on about the vegan options in their town. One of their towns was Tampa. Then someone else who was from Baltimore started talking about what a huge vegan scene there is in Baltimore, which, of course, we know. But like this was a to total non-vegan you know, and then everyone was just excited to talk about veganism. And then, you know, a few minutes later, the animal exploitation comment comes up. And I decided that every time someone said something exploitative about animals, I would, within the next five minutes, bring up something vegan. <laughs> so I kept doing that. It was pretty funny. Uh, like someone mentioned Bob Barker, who, you know, obviously is a, a obviously the Price is Right iconic host. Not that we were on the prices right, but he came up and someone said something about him. And I said, oh, I interviewed him once for for a magazine that I that I'm an editor at because he he's a huge animal advocate. You know, I just tried to yeah. bring it back to the animals whenever I could. Yeah. But all, all in all, at the end of the day, at like it ended at like 1130 p.m. It was Aww. a Friday, Friday night. And we made like emergency midnight vegan mac and cheese to just like with like cut up vegan hot dogs in it to just yum eat eat our emotions because the day was hard but anyway so that's my let's make a deal story not a great one but um it reminds me of the things to be grateful for such as the ability to get up and stretch and walk around and be outside in this beautiful glorious fall that we're having so let's talk about our vegan businesses this is a program that we, excuse me, a program. I forgot. I have to say program in homage to my late grandmother who said program. This is a program that we started. I said it again. <laughs> just said program. Program. <laughs> this is, sorry, Grandma. This is a program that we started that is celebrating vegan businesses, many of which are, are, are struggling because lots of businesses are struggling this year. We wanted to put some extra airtime in to uh, the vegan ones. So every week we make sure to focus on some vegan businesses that we know and love and some that you tell us about by going to ourhenhouse.org slash vegan businesses and filling out the form or you tweet at us or Instagram DM or Facebook or email us. Let us know. 
So you want to get us started? Yeah, I totally want to talk about renegade food. And you already kind of mentioned this because it was part of the the uh, cook-along that you had mentioned before featuring Chef Marisa Miller-Wolfson. And but it also featured Iona and Kaylee from Renegade Food. And, and I won a prize during the cook-along and, well, I didn't actually win it, but it's complicated. But they sent me these three salamis, which, and I hadn't had their food yet. I was so excited and they were so good. Well, I've only eaten one, but I have eaten an entire one. Uh, really so good. And something that, you know, has been missing from my life. It's a woman-owned company. They, they offer all these amazing smoked meats, they're, of course, made entirely from plants. They believe that, quote, eating well should be easy, taste delicious, and support our earth and every animal that calls it home. That's a sweet way of putting it, isn't it? Their smoked meats are loaded with flavor and protein, ready to eat on the go. Yeah, I, there were a few bites I took just like out of the refrigerator or enjoy with friends and family. Their plant-based salami sampler includes, that's what I got, spicy chorizo, Smoky Soprasata and Sweet Toscana. Plus, if you order that sampler, you'll get a free package of winter salami, which has roasted garlic and a hint of warming spices. So you can find them at renegadefood.com or on Instagram at Eat Renegade. And the story is that they were calling names from the hat and they called they called someone's name and the person didn't say anything. So they moved to the next person and it was you. And they're like, okay, we'll move to the next person. Oh, Marianne Sullivan. Oh, what's that? Oh, the first person is here. So they had called you for like a second and then like had backseas on it and took it back. They giveth and they taketh away. But then the next day, the next day they emailed (laughs) you and were like, we want to give you something because we, it was so kind. It was really nice. Anyway. All right. So the second business, well, I'm not actually sure this is a business, but it sort of is. We recently came across a bunch of children's books that you may be interested in. And, you know, tis the season. These are picture books, so for very young children, with text by a 19-year-old activist, Lotus K, and lovely illustrations by Shay Deal. There is a Thanksgiving-themed one, which is all about a turkey who hears that Turkey Day is coming up and is very excited that there's a day named after him. Oh, God, that's tucking at my heartstrings. And then finds out the truth. That is deep. This is called A Thanksgiving for the Turkeys. Plus, there's also Jenny the Chimpanzee, Billy the Octopus, and More Beautiful Than Heaven, which is all about the beautiful places and creatures here on Earth. Although the text is definitely for young children, there's also somewhat more in-depth information at the end of each book about things like being vegan and supporting sanctuaries. There's a bio of Jane Goodall. I also understand that each book comes with a stuffed animal. So if you have little ones in your life or if you have my address, you can find these books at eifrigpublishing.com. I didn't know how to pronounce that, so I'm spelling it out. I'll spell it again. eifrigpublishing.com. Or you can find it in the usual places where books are sold. I love me a stuffed animal. This sounds like a super special collection of books. So now let's transition to the interview because I have grown to really be a giant fan of our guests today, Melissa Hoffman and Sean Smith. And they are, as we mentioned, the co-directors of the Living Future Foundation, but they're also both women of many parts. The foundation's flagship project is Show Farm. That's that's S-H-O. It is a 1,300-acre integrated campus of regenerative food, energy, and building systems designed to stimulate further innovation. 
Melissa is also a perennial plant-based chef and educator in the marriage of living land systems with the rich traditions of global plant-based gastronomy. She has devoted the last 15 years to pioneering wildlife-integrated food systems. Sean, who grew up in Iowa and attended the U.S. Naval Academy, is an expert in permaculture, real estate brokerage, and is the director of the Sanctuary at Show and its beautiful flock of ducks. She describes herself as Mexican Native American, an ethical vegan, animal rights activist, conservationist, athlete, farmer, land steward, and heavy equipment operator. They will be joining Marianne right after this. We're excited to announce Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy, a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial diversity, equity, and inclusion as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. The authors, myself included, are a group of advocates who wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow, and we would like to hold ourselves and our peers accountable and create new ways forward. Encompass Essays is a collaboration between our henhouse, Encompass, and Sentient Media, and I'm truly honored to be the editor on this essay collection. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to centralize anti-racism around our advocacy. Encompass is a nonprofit working to make the farmed animal protection movement more effective by fostering racial diversity and inclusivity. Sentient Media, where the essays are rolling out, is a robust digital platform that reports on animal agriculture and its impact on the world. This essay collection is providing a new and necessary way forward, one in which we can all be held accountable for doing exactly what I just said, for centering our anti-racism in this fight to end the exploitation of animals. Beyond the digital presence for Encompass Essays, which includes plans for audio versions of the essays, which will air here on the Arhenos podcast next year, Lantern Media will be publishing an anthology version of the collection in both hard copy and digital form. Down the road, we will parlay the work of the collection into a springboard for digital panels, collaborative discussions, and hands-on trainings. And in addition, the hope is that this is the beginning of a three-part series where the authors will revisit our anti-racist work and provide updates to be published in future follow-up collections. So you can learn more at sentientmedia.org slash encompass dash essays. Again, it's sentientmedia.org slash encompass dash essays. Welcome to our hen house, Sean and Melissa. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is such a pleasure to have you here. What you were doing, you know, when I first started preparing for this interview, it just seemed like you're doing so many different things that it was really daunting to try to cover them all together. But but then as I delved into it more, it feels like you're doing one thing and there are a lot of different parts to it. Then you also mentioned to me that perhaps the overall theme is coexistence, a word which I love. And I'd love to get your take on what that word means as kind of the overall ethic, and then we'll get into some of the details. Well, I think that's a wonderful takeaway. It's very typical for people to find us and start reading about what we're doing and have that same initial reaction. Wow, you're doing a lot of different things. But in fact, you hit the nail on the head. We have a lot of tools 
we're using a lot of different avenues to support a universal passion, a universal purpose, which is to find ways and demonstrate ways for humans to harmoniously coexist with our non-human kin and nature. And the non-human kin extending to all life, well, wildlife, farm animals, companion animals. So it's all inclusive of life, the trees, the plants, so on and so forth. Yeah. It, and and I, I just want to warn people or unwarn people, when you say farm animals, it's not that you're raising them yourselves. You're thinking about what's happening to them. And um, we'll get into that in more detail. But let's start with, I think probably you would call the centerpiece of this project, Show Farm. And you use the term wildlife integrated food system, which just seems, you know, impossible. We think of these as different things in the world, uh, the world of wildlife and the world of agriculture. So what does that mean to have a wildlife integrated food system? There are appropriate times where we want to exclude wildlife from where we're growing our certain crops and certain plants. And we can do that very efficiently. But primarily where wildlife come into the picture are in perennial systems. And the, the difference for those who aren't aware of what an annual plant is, it, you, put in a, you put a seed in the ground, it bears fruit or leaves, let's like lettuce, the vegetables, many of the vegetables we use in our diet, uh, a grain, and then there are perennial crops like things that grow on trees or shrubs that fruit or, or bear yearly, like fruit, like uh, currants and strawberries and cherries and tree fruit and nuts. Um, and then a lot of greens that actually can, can grow in a perennial fashion um, in certain climates and also even in our northern climate. So we're looking at, and you don't have to till the soil every year to put those seeds in. Once you plant them and nurture them into uh, their bearing age, they continue to bear nuts, fruits, seeds um, every year. So those specifically, those perennial plants are ideal for uh, integrating with wildlife in the way they are planted and maintained. So we can actually create wildlife habitat with our food systems and time what we do in those food systems. It's called agroforestry. It's called, it can be called permaculture. It goes by many different names. Uh, but there are ways of understanding the patterns of wildlife, their breeding habits, what they like to eat and when, and how to use that knowledge. For example, a deer likes to eat Jerusalem artichoke leaves. Those are little tubers in the ground that come up every year and they look like sunflowers. They're related to sunflower family. You can, you can plant those in a, in a spot in your orchard and the deer will come and they'll eat those and they'll poop. And you've got that nutrient, that vital nutrient in those manures coming into your food system because the way that 
agriculture works, the way we get our food is it's it's a beautiful process of biological cycling of nutrients and decomposition and feeding microbes and feeding soil life that uh, uh, it, once you start to learn about it, you you realize that there are ways to marry animals and the, the wildlife that inhabit the landscape, oftentimes that agriculture has displaced, well, we can bring those wildlife back in to the landscape so that we're not, uh, we're, we're not impinging on wildlife habitat. We're not harming animals in order to protect our crops. We're not taking away from the opportunities for biodiversity in the way we meet our food needs. So this requires a number, it's a very complex issue and you can ask me a follow-up question if I'm going too in the weeds here. Oh, perfect, perfect way to put it. Get in the weeds all you want. <laughs> the goal is to start to understand how we meet our human needs without, without contributing to biodiversity loss and landscape fragmentation and how we can even reclaim a lot of the land that is currently occupied by annual agriculture, which is often involves growing corn and soybeans and even grain to feed in part to animals. And we can re-inhabit perhaps 60, 70, even 80% of the land that's currently used under a conventional agriculture and give it back to the animals. And then we we can grow sufficient amount of food using perennial cropping systems, rewilding the land, and then a, a, a mixture of the two where there's a kind of edge effect between total wilderness and human agriculture, and that's perennial food crops. You're just kind of blowing my mind. Like, I don't know anything about this. And it, it sounds so idyllic. You say we could we could transfer 60, 70 percent of our, our, our land that is currently growing crops. Can we really feed the world this way? Yes, when you start to look at the data about how much arable land we have and how much of that arable land is given over to raising livestock, it will blow your mind. So imagine if we no longer raise livestock in the same manner that in which we're doing so now. It would drastically reduce the amount of land that we need to feed even a growing population. Imagine if urban areas, if the way we design human settlements involve productivity, green spaces. Imagine if every yard that has a lawn that's mown became a food producing hub for the community. There there are models of farming now that contract with landowners who have lots of yard Farmers come in and they grow crops on it, and then they sell it to the to the community. So you don't have to be the one farming it. So there is so much land that we have. You always want to grow food as close to the population that's going to consume it as you can. It preserves nutrients. It it does not lose. It, it stays fresh, fresher. It's more nutritious. It's so much healthier. I mean, we can talk about the quality of the nutrition that we're getting in addition to the fact that, you know, we're eating uh, a non-harming diet by consuming plants. Well, if you if you pick a lettuce leaf on your backyard and you eat it, it's going to have 
10 times the value to your body as if it has been sitting in a grocery store for three weeks or in transit from a field far away. So there are so many advantages to how to relocalize a food system and use the available land in mutually productive ways. Imagine if we use human waste in a productive way, for example, cycling nutrients in in back and forth between a farm and and the community, even compost. There's there's so much opportunity for synergies that would give us way more food than we would ever need. You have an incredible vision here. It's just so powerful. And, you know, it's not really the same vision as so much you hear in local agriculture circles. It it seems to be all about raising the chickens and and raising, you know, local dairy and local, local, local. But it always seems to be built around animal agriculture. Why do you think that is? And do you see any of that changing? Yes. There's a growing movement that understands how ecosystems function and how to dovetail with those ecosystems. And a lot of people, what you described, a lot of people would would describe as regenerative agriculture, where there's the the idyllic homesteading situation where you have chickens, you, you cycle your own food waste through the chickens, and then in exchange you get to eat their eggs, and everyone's so happy. But it doesn't really account for the realities uh, in the entire context of uh, of the chicken, of why it has been bred to do what it does, the harm in that industry to produce eggs for human consumption. I think a lot of us know those issues already. Uh, this audience is probably very familiar with that. But there's a movement called Regenerative Vegan, where we're, we're still looking at regenerating ourselves, our communities, the ecosystem, but we're doing it in a way that does not use animals. And what you'll hear in a lot of those circles, and this goes to your question too, is that animals are necessary for converting inedible food into edible food if you're if you're consuming animal products. Well, there needs to be a, a, a widely available body of knowledge that shows that you don't need to use animals in that process. You can synergize with the biology that's already present, the wild biology that's already present, the birds that come, the soil life. How do you protect all of those invertebrates in the soil? So that is getting spoken about more and more and more in these cutting edge backyard homesteading circles, which I think is a really good thing. And Both Sean and I spend time in those audiences because that's how I started. I wasn't a a regenerative vegan farmer from the get-go. I was one of those backyard animal farmers. And so I think bridging those two worlds together to show and to demonstrate the research that's already out there, like Ian Tolhurst over in the UK has been growing veganically for over 25 years with no animal inputs and with huge benefits to his his soil with tons of earthworms in there that are growing beautiful crops. Um, so it's not that we exclude animals, we just work with the, the biology that's already in the system. That's really a beautiful vision. It really is. And like, let's take it a little from the vision to the reality because you have 
a huge piece of property in Vermont. A lot of it is is forested, and there are a lot of animals living on that land. Can you tell us a little bit about who lives on your land? Sure. So you mentioned that, and thank you for doing that, when I mentioned livestock. So we have flock of ducks here, and the ducks were rescued in 2016. Yeah, give us a little background on that story. Sure. We had been full-on invested in the wildlife integrated agriculture project of our of our nonprofit. And we found out that there was someone in Vermont claiming to grow local, sustainable rice. And and as vegans, we were so excited. So we went over there, we were gonna buy the rice and the gentleman found out that we were doing agriculture, and so he thought we might want a tour of his operation, and we did. And we were horrified to find out that even though he was growing a, a staple food in our diet, he was engaged in animal agriculture because he was using ducklings in his rice paddies for about seven weeks to do the, the backbreaking work of weeding and uh, managing insects. And he was taking advantage of the fact that they would poop and pee in the water and aerate the water and stir the water. And so they were doing all these really important rice growing jobs that he didn't have to do for him. And then he would pull the ducklings out at about seven or eight weeks so they didn't damage the rice. And then he, he had hundreds of ducklings. The year we rescued our flock, he put 400 ducklings in the paddy, not really protecting them from predators, with no adults to teach them what to do or, or to protect them. And he lost over 60% of them to predators, oh my God. which he calculated into the number he bought, never mind those that perished coming from the hatchery to him. So he had about 130 or so remaining at the end of his use of them. I said to Melissa, I, I cannot buy this rice. I cannot eat this rice. We, we forget this. We're not doing this. Unless we're willing to put our money where our mouth is and walk, walk the talk and disrupt the cycle of violence and take the ducks in. And she, she looked at me. She knew I had had this vision for a sanctuary of some kind in my heart and in my mind. And uh, neither one of us had been thinking about it, talking about realizing it. But here we were about to buy a product that we enjoy eating, that's locally raised, that was being grown in a way that was much better for the environment. But it was, it was being grown on the backs of these young animals. And they were headed to a dog food company. So we stepped in and we rescued 116 ducklings. And um, over to us, they came and they have become our partners. They are in sanctuary. We started sanctuary at show when we adopted them. It really sounds idyllic. One of the stories about the ducks specifically that I really loved was actually about rats because I, I know that sanctuaries struggle with rats all the time. And I really love the story of how you resolved that issue. Sure. It was about a year and a half after the ducks had arrived. And 
I went into the barn one day and I saw a hole in the screen and I thought my heart sank. I thought a predator had gotten in and we couldn't figure out. So both Melissa and I have gone through wildlife tracking courses and we use those skills in the stewardship of the property and in everything we do. And so the first thing was to go outside and see what what tracks we could find to try and determine what it was. Was there any scat left behind? Were there claw marks on the barn? And there was no real evidence. So this went on for a few days. We started making repairs to the screens and then we realized what the problem was. We had rats. They had come from outside. They're wild. And they had gotten a sniff of the food and they took up residency. And we're committed to do no harm. So we were confronted with what to do about a growing wild rat problem in the duck barn. And one of our first concerns was, are they going to harm the ducks? That concern was put to rest when we found a few dead rats. The ducks were quite capable of protecting themselves. And in fact, they, they actually killed a few rats. So what we decided to do is to live trap the rats and relocate them. And we found a woman nearby who's a rodent rehabber and an expert, and she became a consultant to us and an advisor about what to do. And the first year, we were too close to winter to release them back into the wild because they we had not released them and allowed them to set up a burrow system, a a colony underground where they would be able to overwinter safely and cache enough food, store enough food to get through a winter. So she said, you have two options. You can overwinter them in a cage in the barn and take care of them, or you can bring them to me and I'll humanely euthanize them. And we looked at each other and said, well, let's buy a cage. We'll overwinter (laughs) them. And we did. And it was insane. We had (laughs) two cages at the end of the winter. I was taking care of them every day. And it it was a lot of work. But that winter allowed us to really gain an, an appreciation for these animals that we would not have otherwise gained in, in being in that position of respecting life, valuing life, and then putting it on ourselves to learn more about what they need and how they interact as a species. And what we walked away with was an enormous respect for their intelligence, their social dynamic, um, their curiosity, their fear, their diverse personalities. So in the spring, we released them all. And the next year, we created what became known as the Rat Temple. We used down trees, big um, branches and down trees. And then we took loads and loads and loads of hay from the barn and p- created this beautiful, thick, protective space and released them inside of it and then let them go to town, building an underground world for themselves and putting food down there and getting them ready for winter. And then all winter last year, that's when we released them. So we, they were being released back into the wild, but they had everything they needed to be given a chance. And that's what we do now. I love that story. That That is exactly how everybody uh, should treat the animals who get into their house. I, of course, as everybody knows, who listens to this podcast, 
just don't deal with the issue like and have mice living in my house. I don't have rats, but I do have mice living in my house, but I never know what to do about them. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to learn from that. You're going to teach me how to do that. And it ends up being a beautiful experience instead of a horrible experience, which I love. Uh, and so much of what you do seems to to be that way. I know you're like like you talked a bit about growing things, the perennial gardens, but within the forest setting. But I know you're also expanding into, or maybe I'm wrong, but expanding into a little bit more uh, traditional looking farming that is veganic. Is that is that true? Are you expanding the types of crops that you're going to be growing? Can I just add one more thing about the rats just to kind yeah, of sure. that out and then I'll let Melissa answer the, that question. Um, so for folks that are interested in, in ecosystem balancing, one of the difficulties with the rat project that I had initially was opening the trap door and letting them go free into the wild because I knew it was going to be a hard life for them. And it challenged me as a vegan. Well, we can't keep them in the barn. They're wild. They're, they're damaging the barn. And it's a lot of work. And it's not healthy for anybody. Not them and not us, not the ducks. And what happens is they're being released to go back into the wild, which is where they originally came from. And they are becoming part of what we hope to be a well-balanced ecosystem. Because they are a highly desirable food source for other wildlife on the property that doesn't exist on the surrounding dairy farm, heavily rotationally grazed farm, and overmown residential yards. So it's another way that we are coexisting and giving to our wildlife can, uh, but not directly. We are giving those rats a chance to do what they can to make the best of their life, but they are going back into the ecosystem here. And it, it was difficult initially, but we've resolved that. And it's another part of coexistence. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a struggle for all of us who care deeply about animals. And these are animals who you had actually gotten to know, to struggle with the contrast between the fact that the wild you know, it's it's a cruel place. Uh, there's much cruelty within it, but trying to fix it never seems to work. So it is one of the realities of living on this earth um, that that I think that we all struggle with. So I can imagine that it was a very difficult moment knowing that some of these animals were not going to make it. But ultimately, sometimes you have to face these things. And at least knowing that what you're doing is is in tune with the wild on the earth as we know it, uh, I think it must have given you some some solace in, in letting them go. But it, yeah, it would have been a very difficult thing for me too. People who do um, wildlife rehabbing, I'm sure they struggle with this all the time. All right, let, let's get back to my question about veganic farming. Are you planning on expanding the crops that you're growing and tell us what you're, and doing a little bit more not necessarily in wooded areas, but uh, growing maybe uh, veganic crops on a, on a bigger level? We have plans for expanding the food system. We have, of the 1,300 acres, about 116 of those acres are open. And so we want to focus any further food system installation 
in those already existing open spaces so that we're leaving the forest alone. The plan will be to create an integrated agroforestry system that also has annuals. And we're interested in cold climate staples, things that can get put up on the shelf that become you know, a, a go-to in a vegan diet. So legumes, no-till soybeans is something we're interested in looking at, um, heritage beans. And the interest that we have is there's such a need by farmers, especially regenerative vegan farmers, to gain access to land. And it's difficult. I think access to land is the, is the number one obstacle for most people trying to break into farming today. The high price of land keeps them out. So we're looking to create space in these new installations around the property on these open spaces to partner with farmers that want to get into doing the different kinds of uh, crop growing that we're interested in bringing onto the landscape. I love that. I think I saw somewhere on your website or you mentioned that you're also planning on growing mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I think they're going to save the world. Do you have mushroom plants? Totally agree with you. They're one of our favorite crops. And we love both uh, cultivated mushrooms and wild forage mushrooms. And we're lucky to experiment with both. So we had about 250 logs come into our farmstead a few years ago and we inoculated them with shiitake, oyster, and lion's mane. And the reason we focused on those three uh, is because we, ha- we wanted to yield a pretty high volume. The reason we didn't really have to go beyond that is we're really blessed to have a forest that's healthy and is growing amazing medicinal wild mushrooms like turkey tail, chaga, reishi, folates, birch polypore. And what we've done is a lot of those wild mushrooms, I mean, we've got lion's mane growing wild. We have oysters growing wild. It's a little bit of a hit or miss in the forest, what you're going to find, what it's going to yield. Mother Nature really dictates that out of our control. That's why we had a cultivated uh, mushroom nursery, and then we also work with the wild. But the wild turkey, like turkey tail, it's we're lucky we have a lot of it. And so, our approach with the mushrooms, with the wild foraging, is to have an ethical harvest approach. We don't just go out and harvest every single chaga, reishi, turkey tail that we see. We're very select about how much we bring back, and because these mushrooms. Those kinds of mushrooms, chaga, reishi, turkey tail, for example, aren't kind of mushrooms that you saute up or cook and add to a meal. What we do to get the medicinal value from them, and they are our greatest source of medicine. We really believe that, and we use it ourselves. We dry them, and then Melissa has been experimenting in the food lab with how to integrate them into our diet so that we're eating food medicine from our forest. And she's done mind-blowing things with them. She's got a whole myco broth line, a whole myco brew line. So she's integrating 
all the variety of mushrooms we have into probiotics that she's making, into broth. So we don't, you know, we eat mushroom broth while someone's having chicken broth or bone broth or, you know, there is a more medicinal, healthy broth alternative to animal-based broths, and it's mycobroth. Yeah, that sounds completely amazing. I know that that you have plans to expand your growing platform and to bring in some veganic growers. Can you tell us about that project? Certainly. We have a pretty decent sized uh, acreage that would invite and allow for farmers on the property. We've also been a bit of a victim of our own success in the sense that <laughs> we've attracted so many wildlife into our existing food system, which is perennial, that uh, we're, we planted some tomato crops this year, potato crops, and they were browsed down very, very heavily. And so we learned that we're going to need to concentrate our annual production in areas that can be guarded and protected which is fine. It's, it's as it should be in a sense. So much can be raised on a dedicated set of plots that are overseen and managed by veganic growers. And we are very excited to welcome that participation onto the land. We have lower-lying fields that have been traditionally used for both hay and grazing that we're, we'd like to dedicate to a demonstration of these alternative methods of growing crops that also build soil, that also contribute to carbon sequestration. So a conservation model of growing vegetables that also draws nutrition from the surrounding landscape. For example, we have very wet pastures and a lot of people in Vermont have wet pastures and they used to put animals out into them and everyone likes to keep them open. Well, some have no business being grass. They, if you don't mow, what happens is willows show up and th- these are multi-branched. Like uh, you'll see a willow plant. It's a shrub that has maybe 20 stems coming up and one root system so you can come along and cut that willow shrub down every four or five years. You and and that the nutrition in those branches is so high, you can chip it, compost it, and use it as a vital fertilizer for growing vegetables. And then those willows grow back very rapidly. And when they grow back rapidly using that one same root system. They are sequestering carbon because wood is carbon. And it's during those very fast regrowth uh, sessions after you've pruned or they call it coppicing that uh, you sequester an enormous amount of carbon and you keep that root system intact. You don't disturb the soil. And then you're growing vegetables from the, the, the product and the nutrition and the fertility that's already growing on site. And we have that in spades. It's such a fascinating thing 
when you allow natural succession in a field, natural regrowth, you can either use those use those plants that are naturally coming up. They become more and more woody as time goes on. And what's happening also underground, it's, it's building what is called a mycorrhizal fungal network, which uh, also sequesters a lot of carbon. And when you till the soil, you, disturb, you disrupt that network and you, you release carbon into the atmosphere. So there's a way of taking nutrition from one place on the farm, placing it in another and meeting our needs with a, a very, with proper disturbance, with, with proper intervention that uh, creates a closed loop. And this is the kind of thing that once vegans and, and people who are interested in, in, in ethical food systems, once they know about as an option can start demanding. So we're hoping to, to provide that uh, opportunity in part for ourselves, in part for new residents, in part for new farmers who, who want to show that it is possible to harmoniously coexist with an entire ecosystem, including animals and wildlife, without exploiting one single animal. It's so amazing because I think so many of us buy vegetables that are grown organically and, you know, just kind of ignore the fact that that means that they're using animal manure, you know, 99 times out of 100. And and the idea that you can actually really take animals out of the entire system is so inspiring. And, you know, somebody has to do it first. I, I love that, that that's what you guys are doing. You guys have so many projects. It's hard to keep track of them all. But I do want to go through this one because it is one of the ways in which you're not just showing by example, but you're really spreading your ethic. And that's this living land trust that you're working on. I know it's a work in progress. So, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what point you're at in developing this and spreading it out to the world, but can you tell us about it? Yeah, I'll talk to that. Sure. Thank you. So the living land trust is a, a placeholder name. I don't know if it'll stay that way, but it, it's meant to express the vision we have of launching a land trust that will be an ethical, vegan, mission-driven land trust. So what does that mean? Land conservation has been around for a very long time in this country, and it's had different phases and waves. But what's been consistent about it from inception is that it's been driven largely by people who self-describe themselves as true conservationists, and they are sports people. They are hunters and trappers. And when land gets formally conserved with what is called the conservation easement, which is a legal document that essentially sets out the uses of the property that can that will be allowed and will not be allowed, quote unquote, forever. They have to be perpetual in nature. And so uh, what happens is lands that get protected, they do to a large degree become protected from being converted to some commercial or residential use. And in that way, people are achieving uh, the goal of keeping space open and undeveloped. But 
it, these lands are heavily impacted by uses that are driven by what people want to have happen on them, how people want to engage with the land. Even in cases where the organizations involved in completing a project will say, one of the primary goals of this conservation project is core habitat preservation. So you should donate to this project because it's so vitally important to the wildlife. And so the public says, oh yeah, that sounds great. I'm gonna give a donation. I think this is a fantastic project. And then what happens is, unbeknownst to most people who make donations, is hunting and trapping and fowling and fishing is allowed. And I don't see the connection between creating space for core habitat and then opening it up to, in Vermont, hound hunting, in some cases, open season hunting on precious wildlife. And so our vision is, no, we're going to set land aside first and foremost for the animals and the ecosystem. And then we'll take a look at what uses by humans would not be devastating or undermining to the animals and to the ecosystem. And in some cases, it's going to be no human impact. And in other cases, there'll be some passive human impact, hiking, uh, skiing, uh, swimming. And then in some cases, there'll need to be an allowance for farming and maybe for cutting trees to meet our needs in Vermont, for example, of heating. So there needs to be a recognition, again, kind of getting back to this idea of coexistence. We're all trying to meet needs. And how do we do that on a finite amount of land? And how do we do that with an ethical vegan stewardship philosophy? So the idea of the Living Land Trust is to conserve land with a conservation easement that fundamentally prohibits for forever animal agriculture, hunting and trapping and fishing and fowling so that life isn't taken in the desire to keep land open. And we are doing that on Show Farm as a demonstration project. We're, we're, I'm in the middle of writing an ethical vegan conservation easement that will protect the entire 1,300 acres. We're going to record it. And based on my, my professional work in this field for almost 30 years, I have good reason to believe that once it happens, it will likely be the first one of its kind in Vermont, possibly New England, possibly the United States. Because most easements remain open, especially when there are public dollars involved in, in, in getting those deals done. It has to remain open to some kind of public use. And usually the stakeholders bury or just don't talk about the fact that they're going to allow hunting and or trapping. So the first step is that we are going to do it on our own land, show people what we're actually talking about, and then 
and then roll out the Living Land Trust and have it be available to hold these kinds of ethical vegan easements on other people's lands, first in Vermont. But my vision is that it will be, it will grow and it will rival these larger NGOs that work across not just Vermont or New England or the U.S., but even globally, so that people around the world who want to see their land protected and protected in this way have an organization to partner with, because right now there is not an organization to partner with. Well, I just really, I really love that idea. And and I think so many people who want to protect their land and protect their legacy beyond their own lives just have no idea what's what's happening with a lot of these easements and, and would really want to sign up to this kind of protection. So good luck with that. Good luck with all of these things. You're working on so many different things. But like I said in the beginning, they're all kind of the same thing. And it's really been inspiring. Tell people where they can find you online. We have a couple of different sites. Our nonprofit is called Living Future Foundation. So you can find us at livingfuture.org. Our sanctuary work can be found at sanctuary at show, S-H-O dot org. Our farm work is at showfarm hyphen cbduck.com. And, and there people can, can purchase one of your products. Is that right? You have, you have a product um, that is, you're actually raising and selling the CBD oil? Yeah, we have a lot of products that you can purchase online through that storefront. Excellent. I'm sure people will be checking you out. And thanks so much for all you're doing. And thanks so much for joining us today on our Hen House. Thank you for the invitation. It was wonderful. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story, I'm not even sure this is an anxieties rise. It's a something rising. I guess it's anxieties rising. It's about the fact that Matthew Prescott, who works for the Humane Society of the United States, has just written a column on meetingplace.com. Yes. No, he isn't turning to the other side. The title of his column is On the Contrary, the Food Industry is Making Animal Welfare Progress. And he's writing to, to uh, in, in disagreement with Rick Berman's take um, on food company difficulties. I think we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, talking about how animal welfare improvements are not happening. They're impossible. They're never going to happen. And uh, Matt is pointing out, well, he's wrong. He's talking about, you know, the kind of improvements that that we're seeing being legislated or agreed to around the country. So, you know, these minimal yet huge uh, improvements, huge because they apply to so many animals and they are real and minimal because, you know, they're hardly the way an animal should live. But but particularly cage free, he point, Matt points out that when he first started in his job, which was 20 years ago, boy, he looks young, he would call companies and ask about their policies or or if they uh, 
were familiar with cage free and and he found that not they just thought he was trying to they thought he was trying to sell them something because and they had no idea what he was talking about and uh they just would say we already have suppliers now the all the industry is very 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 aware of these uh systems since animal welfare activists have been working on them for a long time and they've been put into law in many states and he points out that yeah, thirty percent of the egg industry are now is now cage free. That's unbelievable. I didn't know that number was that high. And in individual companies that have done deals, like retailers who have done deals with with animal welfare activists to put into place buying practices, have also, you know, Starbucks is apparently one hundred percent cage free eggs. Uh, McDonald's is forty three percent. That's for its domestic egg buy. Uh, and the lo- three largest food service companies, Compass Group, Aramark, and Sodexo, have also converted to 93%, 80%, and 79% respectively uh, for their eggs to be cage-free. And now don't get mad at me. I know cage-free is not a solution. I know. I know. I, am I saying this too many times? But it is pretty, uh, pretty good proof that Rick Berman is not right when he says this isn't happening and he's not right when he says that it can't happen. These things can happen. And, you know, what we all hope is that these small steps when competing with uh, vegan products will will gradually make these products more expensive, more difficult to produce. And uh, there you are. We'll be done someday, someday soon. But that's not what Matt's talking about. He's just talking about that this is wrong. This this progress is taking place. Uh, he talks about the the changes in the law that battery cages and gestation crates for pigs have been outlawed um, in a number of states. He also talks about the recent lawsuit by the North American Meat Institute about uh, California's most recent uh, ballot initiative, which had to do with buying practices in California. And if you want to know more about that particular lawsuit, listen to this month's Animal Law Podcast. I have Rebecca Carry on from HSUS about the recent successful decision in the Ninth Circuit upholding the lower course denial of a preliminary injunction in, and basically saying, yeah, this is the law. Get used to it. This is what they're talking about on meeting place this week. I don't know. <laughs> I guess they feel sufficiently at risk of, of putting out false information via Rick Berman that they felt that they had to have it corrected and they actually felt they had to give a voice to HSUS. There are no comments at this moment. I, I'm, I'll, I'd be interested to know what they will be. Maybe nobody's going to say anything. Maybe they'll all just ignore it. All right, from Amanda, Amanda Radke at Beef Daily. New cowboy documentary offers levity during a stressful November. She hasn't actually seen this movie and I haven't either. And I don't. I don't think I'm... I, I love you all, but I'm not going to make myself watch this stupid movie. But she loves the idea of it, even though she hasn't seen it. It's called Cowboys, a documentary portrait. It It is, you know, a movie pretending that everybody in the meat industry, I guess, is is like out on the range on, on, on horses doing whatever it is they do to these poor cows. And uh, it is on all of the outlets. It's by a ranch photographer and a former rodeo cowboy. I, oh, my God. And uh, it tells people the, quote, unvarnished reality of the contemporary American West. Yeah, they're all running around out there on the range on horses. Yeah, right. She also starts off this, this doesn't have anything to do with animals, really, but 
she also starts off the column by making it completely clear that that what oh, I'll just read you says <laughs> the never-ending stream of political and COVID-19 discussions has made it hard to focus on the blessings and freedoms we have in America today. And listen, I know it's really hard to look away from the madness on social media and the rhetoric being spewed on the mainstream media. But what if instead we pause for just a moment to spend some time with our families, blah, blah, blah. She clearly doesn't think there is a pandemic. It's, I think she's, she's from one of the Dakotas, which have, you know, the highest numbers in the country. But, but she thinks people should do these things instead, or in addition to doing something fun. No, I guess these are examples of something fun. Attending church. Oh, yeah, that's a good way to go. Uh, target shooting. Well, at least she's not suggesting they shoot animals or each other. Working cattle. What do you do when you work them? Do they like sit at desks and learn how to use a computer? I don't know. Fixing fence. Apparently, that's a special way of saying it. You don't fix a fence. You fix fence. Having a bonfire. Oh, yeah, that's good for the climate. Going to the park. Visit, that's fine. Visiting Main Street shops. <laughs> okay. Why Main Street? And have you not heard about the pandemic? Right. She doesn't believe in it. Or just sitting on the front porch in the rocking chair. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, that's what Amanda's doing. That and causing a lot of trouble. Meetingplace.com. Another article. This is called A Game of Chicken. This is so interesting. This is from the Writer's Block column by Tom Johnston. And he's talking about a recent settlement of the um, the leaders of Pilgrim's Pride, which is a $12 billion chicken company, one of the biggest companies. They entered a plea deal in which the company paid a $110 million fine in mid-October for price fixing. And surprisingly, well, maybe not surprisingly, I don't know, Tom is pretty upset about this. He thinks it's ridiculous. He, he points out that legal experts say it's really only prison sentences that have deterred such criminal alleged criminal activity. And uh, they also, because they also received immunity from further legal proceedings. And, you know, it's a huge, huge company. And this is really just the cost of doing, they, they can, they can incorporate any fine into the cost of doing business. That's his point. And uh, he's upset about it. Okay. And he's also pointing out that consumers just don't seem to care about this. How many consumers are picking up a package of Pilgrim's product right now? And thinking, wait a minute, weren't they fined for price fixing when the price on that package perfectly suits their family's budget and nutritional needs? And, you know, he points out that it's clear that uh, that what matters to consumers is price. Well, of course it does. I mean, do does he really think that the average consumer is supposed to be up on, like, antitrust litigation? Like, seriously, of course they don't know that. How could people, like, people can barely stay alive these days. They're supposed to be on top of the news, this is why we need laws. Well, he does agree we need laws. I mean, I, our conclusions are the same. I just, I, I just think that this idea that this should even be thought of as a consumer issue. He does point out that consumers who pay more attention to the who, what, why, when, where, and how an animal was raised are more inclined to also consider a company's ethical values. Well, actually, those are a company's ethical values. But in addition, whether they price fix. But, you know, he does point out there really aren't enough of those people. And this is the whole point. Why don't you get this when it comes to animal welfare or uh, how you how you do treat those animals? They're always talking about how it's an individual choice, how people can buy whatever they want. If they want you mainly raised, if they want to go vegan, they can just do that. Well, this is this makes the point that the average person 
is not going to enforce the ethic, their ethics on, on, on companies and change the world. We need laws. We need laws for antitrust that are actually enforced and not, and not people aren't given a, just a, a mere uh, fine that won't even affect them. And we need animal welfare laws. And I'd like to see people go to prison for them, too, or for violating them, too. That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation plus our Barnyard Benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year end. That's $20,000 from our Barnyard Benefactors, $20,000 from an anonymous donor, and $20,000 collectively from you. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, and an invitation to our weekly Friday flock Zoom meetings for a fun and engaging conversation with me and Marianne and others in the flock, plus special guests. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I'll send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our henhouse and if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. That's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there. Or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse across the board. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Henhouse as your favorite charity. And we do get those uh, disbursements and they help a lot. So thank you for those of you who do. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to the wonderful Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. Thanks to our graphic designer, Lori Johnston from Two Trick Pony. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.